and I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7 this afternoon. If, if you don't have your, your Bibles with you, there's one in the back. There's also uh, the insert in your service sheets that have all the, the verses on it uh, for, your, for your convenience. Galatians 4, this, well, Galatians 3, 23, in the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, this is, well, we're getting to the point in Galatians where, where Paul starts to lay out uh, in pretty quick succession uh, a lot of really uh, big truths. Uh, and, and there's a lot of really great things here. I hope I can do justice to it this afternoon. Um, I tried also to, to do justice without keeping it too long. Um, which I'm sure you'll all be thankful for. But this is God's word from Galatians chapter 3, uh, beginning in t- verse 23 uh, through verse 7 of chapter 4. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. Uh, There's an old comedy film from the U.S. uh, that those of us of a a certain generation will, will remember called Groundhog Day. And in it, the actor Bill Murray plays a, a... a man who's a, well, he's, he's a, a weatherman, uh, and he's destined to fall in love with a, another character in this film. And the, the problem that he has is that he keeps messing it up. So the universe conspires to, to make him uh, get it right by forcing him to, to live the same day, uh, Groundhog Day, over and over again, until eventually he finds a way to make this, this woman who, who didn't like him very much at the beginning of the film uh, to fall in love with him. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, then, then today's sermon is, is probably going to feel like a Groundhog Day sermon. Uh, yeah, I, I've said all this before, uh, several times already. In some ways, Paul's repeating things he's, he's already said. But at the same time, he's, he's building to something very, very, very big that we're, we're going to get to in a few weeks' time. But the, the truth is that we all need to hear these truths over and over again. The things that, that Paul is saying in these letters, we, we need them repeated to us. Because like, like Bill Murray in, in Groundhog Day, we, we tend to, to keep messing it up, don't we? 
See, the wonder of the gospel is that it's, it's a message that, that we can hear over and over and over again. And it still feels fresh. And it sounds new. And we need to hear it over and over again until those, those truths sink deep down into our souls. So that's what, what Paul was doing with the Galatians in this letter. He's, he's coming back around uh, to, to God's Word and, and what God's Word does for us. And that's what we hear this afternoon. We're reminded of exactly what God's Word does for us. It reminds us of, of who we are and what Christ has done and the benefits of Christ's work for us. And we see this in, in really just two points uh, this afternoon. Uh, two big things. Uh, one from each paragraph before us. You're, first of all, that you're justified by faith and there are benefits that come with that. And second, that you were bought by Christ and there are benefits that come with that. So first of all, you're justified by faith and there's, there's benefits that come with that. So we once again hear Paul using this, this illustration of, of being imprisoned. Uh, we heard him say something similar last week. This week there's a, a bit of a twist on the illustration as he says uh, that you're, it, it's, it's like being uh, under a guardian. He's, he's reminding us that uh, once again, that, that, that the law uh, is, it can't be used to make us righteous before God. If we went out on the street and we asked a bunch of people, uh, why, would, why do you think God would, would allow you into heaven to, to enter into his kingdom? Uh, if we could get some serious answers, which, which would probably be a challenge, I think we could all agree uh, to that question. But if, if we could get some serious answers, we'd probably get something along the lines of, I'm a, I'm a good person, and I try to treat people well. And that's essentially what we think the law of God tells us to do, isn't it? And in some ways, that is what the law of God tells us to do, right? To, to love God and to, to love our neighbor as ourself. But the problem is that, that we can't actually do that completely, can we? You know, we, we, uh, the, the problem is the, the question that was asked uh, of Jesus by, by one of his followers. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers essentially everyone. When everyone's your neighbor, you're going to have people that you don't like and you can't get on with, right? And so the law is there to, to tell us, uh, uh, that, well, we think the law is there to tell us how to be good. And if we're good, then God will be good to us. However, what we learned last week and what, what Paul's repeating here today is that the law was never intended to make us righteous. It was never intended to make us right. Rather, it can only reveal how simple we are and how far short we fall of the glory and holiness of God. And today we once again hear this, this analogy, of uh, this illustration that, that we're prisoners to the law. And, and again, it's, it's a slightly different image in that he says that we're, we've been imprisoned as to a guardian. And we, we come back to a little bit of what that means in our, our second point this afternoon. But you get the sense of, of almost the, the evil uncle or the, the wicked stepmother called the law. And they're, they're keeping the, the princess locked away in, in the tower until a brave prince comes and frees her. And that's actually the whole point of the law. It's to make us feel the, the, the captivity that we're under. That's the whole point of it. I know I say it every week, but, but it's, a, it's a groundhog sermon. The law holds a mirror up to us. 
And it reveals to us who we are. It reveals to us our captivity to, to our sin. And the point of the law is to, to help us to feel that. The law is actually, the purpose of the law is to make you feel bad about yourself. I know that we don't like to hear that, but that's actually part of the point of the law. To help us feel the capti- our captivity to the evil uncle. To feel the helplessness of our situation. So that when we're set free, if we're set free, we, we feel the joy of that freedom. See, that's the point of God giving us the law. Paul says in verse 24, so that we might be justified by faith. Did you get that? The whole point of the law is that God loved us enough to make us feel the terror and helplessness of our sinful condition so that we would long for salvation, so that we would, we would want to be justified by faith. And that's actually incredibly gracious when you stop and think about it, isn't it? You see, our view of God is, is often incredibly small, like shockingly so. We think of God as being uh, like us, that he's, he's just this nice guy that, that's there to affirm us and to, to sort of give us a boost when things are, are, going, hard, are going difficult. Uh, and he helps us out when we're having a hard time or feeling down. But, but if you read through the Bible, even just the Psalms like we did this afternoon, you begin to get a sense of the, the power and the holiness of the true God, don't you? I, I alluded to it earlier, but in the, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we see this, this scene where, where the, the, the prophet Isaiah, uh, this, this man of God, someone that, that in human terms we would think, this is a good man, this is a holy man. Uh, he's, well, he's, he's taken up into heaven and he, he gazes upon the perfection of God in this, this kind of throne room scene. And he's left crying out, woe is me, for I'm lost from a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, this vision of the, the holy God was enough to cause this, this prophet, this holy man, to call down a curse upon himself for his unrighteousness. See, this is the God we're dealing with. And this, the same God, Paul says, gave us the law in order for us to begin to grasp how holy God is and how unholy we are. And that's incredibly gracious in that he doesn't leave us in the curse of our sin. Rather, he, he creates in us an understanding of our need to be saved. Not only that, but Paul says he leads us to that salvation. He did it so that we might be justified by faith. So then what does it mean to be justified by faith? If you, if you imagine uh, a courtroom scene, imagine yourself in a, in a courtroom, and you're the one who's been accused of a crime, let's say stealing. But you're not just accused, you're, you've been caught red-handed. All of the evidence is, is stacked up against you. And you haven't just been caught red-handed in, in petty theft. But you've embezzled billions of pounds from the world's largest companies. And to make it even worse, then you spent it. You bought a couple of football teams uh, and maybe some, some sweets or, or whatever is your thing. But you spent it all. And so what can you ha- expect to happen in this courtroom? At the very least, you can expect a long prison term, can't you? 
But let's, let's say you're standing there before the judge. You've been found guilty. And he's about to pronounce the sentence. And you realize that, that this sentence is going to be so long, you're probably going to end up dying in prison. That your life is all but over. But then suddenly someone stands up in the back and says, hang on, stop just a moment. Just wait a, wait a moment, judge. I have an interest in, in this person. I have an interest in, in Rob. And I want to see the, the things that he's done made right. So I'm, I'm going to restore all the money. I know it's an astronomical amount, but I'm going to restore it all. Everything he's stolen. And I'm going to serve out his sentence on his behalf. And let's say for some some reason the judge accepts that and you're set free. That's what Jesus does. And that is the, the essence of justification. Justification, this word that Paul uses that, that the law is meant to lead us to, uh, is a word for de- being declared legally righteous before God. It's having the debt of your sin paid for by, by another and the, the punishment of your sin taken by another. And that's what Jesus does and that's what he did in his death and resurrection. And we'll see exactly why he could do it in our, our second point this afternoon. But, but before that, let's talk about exactly what, what this faith looks like that Paul talks about and the benefits of our justification. Paul describes faith here as, as putting on Christ. And that's an interesting way of, putting, of, of, of saying it. Uh, he's, he's saying putting on Christ, almost like an article of clothing. I think we need to stop and appreciate how striking this picture actually is. Uh, Tim Keller, who I've, I've been citing a lot on Sunday afternoons lately, uh, actually offers four things that, that are implied in this idea of, of putting on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, first, this idea implies that our primary identity is in Christ. You know, our clothing uh, identifies us, doesn't it? If you're... Uh, uh, you know, you, you've probably heard if you're in, in the, the corporate world, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Uh, trying to identify as something greater or better. Um, you know, but, but clothing identifies us. If you, if you go to visit a, a large manor house, maybe you've been invited as an honored guest, uh, and you see someone in a white tie, a white bow tie, dressed for dinner, they may be the owner of the place. If you see someone in a black bow tie, then they're probably going to be serving you dinner later. At least that's what I can gather from watching Downton Abbey. Um, you know, it, our, our clothing identifies us. Uh, if you go to an event up the street at the Apollo and you see someone in a t-shirt that says event staff, that person's not there to have fun. They're paid to be there to make sure that you have fun and that everyone stays safe. If you go to a football match and you see someone in a, in a white and black kit with the, the letters uh, FFC in red, then they're probably a hooligan. Uh, on the other hand, if you see somebody in a, at a football match in, a, in red and white stripes with a B on the crest, then they're probably a decent bloke and you should, you should get to know them. See, what we, what we put on ourselves says something about us, doesn't it? We judge people based on, on, on what they've put on. It says something about who we are. It says something about our character. To put on Christ is to identify ourselves as belonging to him. But secondly, this image implies uh, the closeness of our relationship to Christ. The, the closest, most intimate thing that each of us, uh, that, that, that each of us uh, has right now is the clothing that we're wearing. More than that, though, we de- depend on our clothing for, for things, don't we? 
when it's cold out, we, we, do, we depend on our clothing for warmth, to protect us from the cold. We depend on it when it's raining. We put on our, our raincoat to go out uh, when the weather turns bad. There's a dependence that's implied in, in the closeness of our relationship to Christ, isn't there? This is where our, our, our relationship to Christ, uh, this dependence has become more than, than simple head knowledge, but has become a, a real and, and, and actual presence in our lives. We need Christ to draw near to us, and thus we need to draw near to him. When we look at him, we need to see our, our sins in his wounds and recognize that, that they've been paid for. That's what it means to be, to, to be close to Christ in our relationship. The third thing that, that this image of putting on Christ implies is that we're seeking to imitate Christ. That we're seeking to, to be like Jesus. See, the closeness of our relationship to him means that we're, we're, putting, we're putting on his virtues and his actions. We want to, to think and speak and act like Jesus would have acted. We want to walk into every situation in our lives asking ourselves, how, how would Jesus have me behave in this place? And that's actually a profound question, isn't it? How would Jesus want me to act in this situation? And to answer that, we, we actually have to know something about Jesus, don't we? Not just this, this sort of vague general idea of him that, that so many of us have, but actually know him through his word. To draw near to him through his word. To understand who he is and who he's called us to be. Fourth and, and almost certainly most importantly, putting on Christ implies our acceptability to God. So all the way back in Genesis, right after uh, Adam and Eve sinned, uh, what did they do? Well, they, they recognized their nakedness before God. They recognized their, their vulnerability, and, and ultimately uh, uh, they, they needed God to, to clothe them, to cover them, to cover their shame. And ultimately God has done that for us, hasn't he? In Christ. So if we're trusting in Christ, if we are, uh, if we're believing in him and his work, if we're saying I can't cover my sins on my own, I can't pay the debt of my sin or, or take the punishment for it. And I need Jesus to do that for me. Then we're clothing ourselves in Christ. And we find that God accepts us as his own for the sake of his son. This is actually a really powerful picture of salvation, isn't it? Everyone should want to be a, sorry, I'm going to say this, Jesus fashionista. Yeah, that, that's, I, I can't decide if I need to, to like trademark that. Or if I should just like let it stay out there because it's not going anywhere. But yeah, Jesus fashionista. You can have it. It's yours. Uh, but, but, but we should all want to be that, don't, shouldn't we? Because to put on Christ, to embrace salvation in him, is to receive this, the incredible benefits of being a child of God. What are those benefits? What are the benefits of justification in Christ? Well, Paul gives us a big one in verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ, Jesus. Now this can be a fairly controversial uh, verse when it's taken out of context, and it's taken out of context quite often, but we're looking at it this afternoon in context, so what is it, what is it saying? It's saying that there's, there's only one identity you'll ever need. There's still divisions, aren't there, in how we were, how we were created, 
or within our place and situation in this world. But if we're in Christ, then then Christ has to be our ultimate identity. And when you stop and you think about it, this is really a shocking statement for our world where we've been told that you, your, your, identif- your identity is, is everything. And you have to determine who you are. And whatever identity you, you want and, and, and whatever identity you take on is, is absolutely central to your, to your personhood. And therefore, everyone else must accept and respect that. So we're told if, if a biological man wishes to identify as a, as a woman, then we're told... That's who they are. It's absolutely central to their personhood. And we have to accept that. But the truth is we never, we never hold these views consistently. And we find if we're, if we're constantly looking for, for our next earthly identity, that we're broken and wandering, jumping from one thing to the next to the next, never finding satisfaction. And even though this wasn't the pressing issue in Paul's day, it's, it's incredibly relevant to this verse, though. Because Paul's saying how you, how you identify yourself is not your central identity if you're in Christ. Christ alone has to be who you are. Christ alone is, has, to define ourself, has to define us. And Martin Luther actually explains what this looks like. Uh, this is what Martin Luther says. If he says, if, if, I want a comfort, if I want comfort when my conscience is afflicted or when I'm at the point of death, I must do nothing but lay hold of Christ by faith and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffered, was crucified, and died for me, in whose wounds and in whose death I see my sin, and in whose resurrection is victory over sin, death, the devil, and also righteousness and eternal life. Besides him, I see nothing, and I hear nothing. These are the words of a, of a man who suffered for his faith, who, who actually suffered deep depressions as well. And he says, what do I need most when, when my conscience is afflicted? What do I need most when I'm, I'm struggling with sorrow and with sin? I need to see Jesus. I need to find myself in Jesus. And this is where we begin, I think, to, to feel the weight of the brokenness and lostness of our world. And a world that says who you are, that, that you are who you're attracted to, or who you want to identify as, or, or what you do for, for a job, or any number of ways that we, we try and, and, and make ourselves matter and, and make ourselves have value. In this world, Paul says the, the, there's only one identity that matters. And in the end, it's, there's only one that matters. It's do you have Christ or not? Because there's no other way of identifying ourselves that will, that will make us acceptable to a holy God. Now the second thing we see this afternoon, and, and I'll be much briefer uh, with this one, is if you were bought by Christ, is that you were bought by Christ... And there are benefits that come with that. Paul gives us another illustration of, of the gospel and what it does for us. He says, we're like a child who is, has this inheritance waiting for them. But we can't receive it until we, until we come of age. 
that for, for he says that, that for hundreds, even, even thousands of, of years, from Abraham all the way up to, to Christ, the world was waiting to receive the riches of God's grace. So it should strike us when Paul says that, that humanity were no better than slaves as they were living under the guardianship of the law. He says the law offered us, us absolutely everything and absolutely nothing at the same time. It pointed us to our, our need for salvation, but was completely incapable of offering us that salvation. Martin Luther again says the, the law gives us nothing. It doesn't give us anything healthy or divine or heavenly, but only worldly things. And that's why Paul calls the law the, the basic principles of this world. Any of us who's ever tried to be a good person should be able to relate to what Paul uh, is saying here. You know, we all try to be good, don't we? We all try to, to live to a standard, but it's never quite good enough. You know, there's going to be people we just don't get on with. There's people that we think we don't need to treat well because of the way they've treated us. There are things that, that we've, we've done or that we've thought, and that because we've, we've done or thought those things in secret, we feel like we've gotten away with them because no one's seen them but us. Yet we still can't stop feeling guilty about those things. And that's because what Paul calls the basic principles of the world, the law, is constantly standing over us and telling us how we ought to behave. And it's telling us how we ought to steward our lives and the world around us. Most of all, the law is standing over us telling us no matter, no matter what we do, we aren't good enough. We aren't free to live as we want or as we ought because there's always a standard that we can't achieve. Even, even if we stripped away God's standard and dismissed the Bible, which many have tried to do, we have to replace that with something else, with another law or standard because the law is how the world works. It's the basic principles of this world and we can't escape it. Which is why the next, the, the next words of Paul are so powerful. He says that the coming of Christ Jesus was, was the climactic event in all of human history. Precisely because Christ has freed us from the oppression of the law. Look at verses, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. Verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, here, here we have one of the shortest but perhaps the most powerful summary of the, the personal work of Christ in all of Scripture. And this is, this is the basics of Jesus. Jesus 101. What does Paul say? First he says that, that Jesus' coming was all part of God's plan. It was all part of his plan. God planned for the found, from the foundations of the world to bring salvation through Jesus Christ, his Son. And when the appointed time came, he sent Jesus to save us. Now stop and think about that for a moment. And reflect on that fact that the, the God of the universe didn't just sort of uh, improvise our salvation. He didn't go, oh, didn't see this coming. Better come up with a plan B. No, this was, this was from the foundation of the world. And at the fullness of time, Jesus came. Why would, why would we want to look anywhere else for salvation? When you have the mighty God 
of the universe working for our salvation. Secondly, we see the full nature of Christ laid out for us. He says uh, that he was fully God. God sent his son. Yet he was and is like us. He's, He's a man. Born of a woman. Born under the law. This is why Paul says the coming of Christ was such a, such a climactic moment because God entered into our world as one of us. He humbled himself and, and took on our flesh. And he, li- he was born of a, of a woman. He, he lived under the same law that we all live under, that, that uh, guardian that, that we all hate and would love to overthrow. He lived under them, yet without sin. And he died the death that we deserve, taking our sins and the wrath of God for them. So when we look at at Jesus' wounds, as Martin Luther said earlier, we see our sins paid for. But more than that, when God the Father looks at Jesus, and when he looks at the wounds of his son, he sees our sins paid for. And he counts us as righteous in his sight. And that's what it means to be redeemed. Redemption is, is actually old slavery language. If you wanted to see a slave set free, then, then you had to, to purchase that slave. If, if you were a slave wanting to be set free, then you had to pay the price of your freedom. And slavery to the law is a, is a price that we could never pay. Because the cost is either perfection or it's death. We needed someone who could come and make full payment. And Paul says that's what Jesus did. And that there's even greater benefits to that than we might imagine. Paul says not only do we receive freedom, but we are adopted as God's children. We can call out to him, Father, and he hears us and he cares for us. That's why we can pray to him and know that he cares for our needs. And that's actually a really dramatic shift in circumstances, isn't it? I think it's really hard for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around this, but it's so critical that we get it. Which is why we need groundhog sermons to keep repeating this truth to us over and over again. So here you go again. In Christ, God loves you like you're his very own child. He dotes on you like a father on his favorite child. He delights in you and there's nothing you can do to change that. That's the central message of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to change how much God loves you if you're in Christ Jesus. Does that mean we no longer sin? No, we're still sinners. And while we're in this world, we'll always be sinners. But it means we we aren't defined by our sins. Our identity has to be in Christ. I know that's hard for us to grasp what that, that looks like. I don't get it perfect myself, but I think what I can say is this. Uh, I'm a sinner. I I sometimes tell lies. I sometimes use words I shouldn't. I often get angry with my wife and my children for no good reason. Sorry. Uh, I, I sometimes allow my mind to dwell on things it shouldn't. I often try to justify the things I do by telling myself that the circumstances, circumstances warranted my actions when they didn't. And what Paul is saying to me this afternoon and to, to all of us 
is that I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief. I'm not uh, any number of things I could, I could call myself. Rather, I'm, I'm a child of God in Christ Jesus. Each morning I get up and I fail miserably at living righteously and, and each day I need to repent and see that Jesus' wounds have paid for my redemption and then get up the next morning and try to be more like Jesus and fail miserably and repent. And I'll spend each day of my life like that until, until one day either Christ comes back or until I die physically. And on that day, whichever day that is, the God the Father will, will wrap his loving arms around me and he will call me his beloved son. Not because of any, anything that I did on these, the, the endless numbered days of my life, but only because of what Jesus did on the cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You see, that's the power of the gospel for each of us. That's why Paul says that it doesn't matter how we identify ourselves ethnically, geopolitically, by class, by gender, or any other worldly identity we could take on. We can be satisfied with who God made us to be if we're in Christ. Because if we're in Christ, then we have the one identity that really matters. We have the love of God the Father. And that is where our, our hearts are set free. Because that is because of, that is what we've longed for, the love of a Heavenly Father who made us, who sustains us, and who redeems us. Let us pray.